This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Well, welcome. My name is Catherine Gedek Soltis, and I have the privilege of directing the Center for Peace and Justice Education at Villanova University. And I thank you all for being here this afternoon. This gathering today represents the convergence of two very special Villanova events. The culminating keynote lecture for Hunger and Homelessness Awareness Week, and the 2014 Adela Dwyer St. Thomas of Villanova Peace Award. It is a testament to the important work and example of today's speaker that he can so ably fill both of those roles. Today marks the close of Hunger and Homelessness Awareness Week, a week that was started here at Villanova in 1975 and has since that time become a national week of awareness, advocacy, and action. This year around the nation, 450 different schools and organizations have organized over a thousand different events. We are at once delighted by these efforts and also devastated that there remains an urgent need for them. Among us today, we have Will Stell, student head chairs Patrick Smith and Amanda Cellino, and many other student leaders and faculty staff who've worked terribly hard to make this week happen here at Villanova. Thank you all for the many hours and the many gifts you have shared. Thank you for helping us examine the scandal of hunger and homelessness, and for giving us a chance to listen to and even run with our brothers and sisters who are most burdened by these injustices. This afternoon, we're invited to think in a particular way about the young people here and abroad who find themselves without a place to call home. And we get to learn about the interventions and the transformations that are restoring hope for a number of these youth. It is because our presenter can speak personally about solutions for vulnerable youth and not just the challenges that we honor him today with the 2014 Adela Dwyer St. Thomas of Villanova Peace Award. With this award, the Center for Peace and Justice Education recognizes annually, quote, outstanding contributions to the understanding of the meaning and conditions for justice and peace in human communities. Our past recipients of this award include Sister Helen Prejean, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the Philadelphia Mural Arts Program, Nobel Laureate Lema Bowie, Wendell Berry, and the Social Justice Lobby Network, which is made famous for their Nuns on the Bus Tour. Today, we have the great honor of adding Mr. Kevin Ryan to this esteemed list. Before I tell you a bit more about Mr. Ryan, I'd like to take a moment to thank the hardworking faculty and staff of the Center for Peace and Justice Education, Carol Anthony, Sharon Disher, Jennifer Joyce, William Stell, and Tim Horner, as well as our two visiting faculty members this year, Jim Wetzel and Elizabeth Kolsky. Gratitude also goes to the members of our Peace Award Committee for considering nominations and helping to select this year's recipient. They are Maria Toyota, Magan Keda, Sue Toten, Jonathan Doe, Paul Rozier, Ralph Giuliotti, Barbara Quintiliano, Randy Weinstein, and co-chairs Will Stell and Tim Horner. Finally, I thank our recipient, Kevin Ryan, for taking the time to be with us today. Last night, 
He participated in the Covenant House Sleepout in New York City, which I don't believe involved much sleeping. <laughs> and this weekend, he runs a marathon here in Philadelphia to continue his efforts to raise money and awareness for homeless youth. So I'm trying to speak a little bit slowly here in these introductory remarks so he can have at least a few minutes to rest and be in one place. <laughs> Kevin Ryan demonstrates what is possible when you devote decades of your life to peace and justice. For more than 22 years, he has been serving and protecting homeless youth. Currently, he leads the International Covenant House Movement, which reaches more than 56,000 trafficked and vulnerable children and youth annually in 27 cities across six countries, the US, Canada, Mexico, Nicaragua, Honduras, and Guatemala. Mr. Ryan is a father, activist, and child advocate. He's a summa cum laude graduate of the Catholic University of America and holds degrees from Georgetown Law Center and New York University Law School. He first joined Covenant House in the early 1990s, providing civil legal aid to homeless, abused, and trafficked youth in New York City. For the rest of the decade, he helped teenagers at Covenant House in the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Atlantic City, and Newark, New Jersey, before being named New Jersey's first public child advocate in 2003. As the state's leading watchdog, Mr. Ryan exposed conditions of illegal overcrowding in many of the state's juvenile detention centers <coughs> and the plight of children languishing in the state's then flourishing foster care system. His work appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Philadelphia Inquirer and stirred popular opinion and political will in support of serious, sustained reforms for vulnerable youth. In 2006, Governor John Corzine appointed him to his cabinet as the first commissioner of children and families, and the two led a comprehensive reform in the New Jersey child welfare system. At the conclusion of their tenure, an independent federal monitor heralded historic net gains in foster families, child adoptions, and safe reductions in children in foster care. Mr. Ryan is now president and CEO of Covenant House. Under his leadership, the organization has opened new shelters for homeless youth in Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Anchorage. And plans are underway to open additional programs in Mexico City, Fort Lauderdale, Vancouver, and Toronto. He and his team also revitalized Covenant House's work in Guatemala in 2010, opening a safe house for trafficked girls and actively co-prosecuting traffickers that prey on the poor and the young. And to meet the growing need for resources to help homeless youth, Mr. Ryan and the Covenant House team have recruited thousands of friends across the Americas to participate in Covenant House's new international sleepouts, like last night, to raise awareness and funds to prevent youth homelessness. Since launching a small pilot effort in New York City for 50 CEOs in 2011, the sleepouts have now spread to six countries and raised more than $4 million to shelter feed and teach thousands of homeless and trafficked young people. And I actually think those stats may need to be revised after yesterday, so you can let us know about the success. With former New York Times reporter Tina Kelly, Mr. Ryan is the co-author of the national bestseller, Almost Home, Helping Kids Move from Homelessness to Hope. With chronicles the true journey of six homeless teenagers in the United States and Canada as they faced abuse, violence, and heartbreak in the search of a place to call home. The book premiered and remained on the Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, Newsday, and an Amazon Top 10 list in 2012. And in May 2013, it received the Silver Medal for Current Affairs from the Independent <coughs> Book Publishers Association. 
Mr. Ryan is a recipient of Harvard Law School's Wasserstein Fellowship, the Skadden Fellowship, the Gibbons Medal, and several honorary degrees. He's taught constitutional law and family law at Seton Hall Law School, Rutgers School of Law, and Fordham University School of Law. And he's made appearances on 60 Minutes, CNN, Fox, The Today Show, Good Morning America, and CBS This Morning. We are delighted that today he makes an appearance here on the campus of Villanova University so that we can honor the extraordinary work he has done on behalf of vulnerable youth. His lecture this afternoon is titled, Together, A Voice for Our Children. We are also delighted and honored that the president of Villanova University, Father Peter Donahue, is here today to join us for this special event. At this time, I would like to invite both Father Peter and Mr. Kevin Ryan up to the podium for the presentation of our 2014 Peace Award. The award states uh, it is for outstanding contributions to the understanding and the meaning of justice and peace in the human communities. Uh, Kevin, we are honored to have you at Villanova. It, we uh, preach a message of truth and unity and love here. And you have exemplified in your life those attributes of calling people to the truth of our conditions, of calling them to live in community, but doing it all out of the commitment of love. So on behalf of the faculty, the staff, and the students of Villanova University, I present you with the Adele Dwyer St. Thomas of Villanova Peace Award. And they sleep with them 
or expenses um, for money. And so um, my boyfriend is like pressuring me to do it the first night that I did it. Like I didn't like it. Um, I, I knew that's not it wasn't something that I wanted to continue to do. Um, he would be violent when I would tell him that he wanted to hit me when I didn't like it. That was hurting internally. Like my hair would be done, my nails would be done, like I would dress nice, but I would be hurting on the inside. Right now, we're at the park, the bench where Ryan and I slept at. So when I got here, I didn't realize it was cold outside, and my daughter wasn't dressed for the weather, and neither was I. So I wrapped my tank top around my daughter, and I was only left in my bra. Why am I sitting here with my daughter alone at night where possibly somebody could call and tell the cops that I was thinking crazy thoughts like I'm not a good enough mother for her? When we was out in the street, it was mainly, we was on survival mode. We was trying to get everything we need, but there were times where we'll starve. We'll have to get the food for my daughter. We'll have to get diapers, blankets, make sure she's warm clothes. We was mostly homeless during the winter, so we was uh, always trying to find someplace warm. It was, it, it was cold outside, it was snow, and then we'll try to find places to sleep at, like the train station. It's a subway station, so of course it was rats. Um, it was dark. We were bringing our knapsack, uh, large like blankets, um, sheets, um, canned foods, so that way we don't attract any rodents. The only time I was really scared was uh, being caught by any uh, MTA worker or officer. Uh, right now we're at the platform, uh, just a couple steps away from where me and my girl used to sleep at. We would know um, when it's safe to go there after the, like, the first train bypasses. Like uh, 30 seconds later, we'll, we'll know that the next train ain't gonna come until like seven to 15 minutes later. So we'll just go down there and just set up camp basically. I kept seeing this couple walk right by me throughout the night, because I stayed up. The last time she walked by, they told me all about the Covenant House and told me how it was safe to go there. I was going through my phone, trying to see who I could call on, because I couldn't call on my mom. I don't have any family here in New York, so you know, that's already like Maria alone. I called um, a teacher of mine from high school. Um, she told me to come to Covenant House. I, I remember the moment like it was yesterday. We was walking down the street. I was pushing my daughter, and I was just looking at the buildings that we was bypassing. Um, I see homes. I see people living in their homes. I'm looking at these people. They have what they have, and I have nothing. And I'm only 17. At that moment, I just decided to, to find something for my daughter and my girls so that way they can get their life together. Even if I can't find something for me, I was willing to at least give them a chance. And I found um, a shelter. They found her a bed right away. I was planning on trying to get myself together any way I can. Just when I'm about to turn off my phone, she calls me back up that uh, there's, a, there's a place for me to go, the Covenant House. That just changed everything. My, my eyes lit up, and I was just like, you know what, um, where is it? Walking into Covenant House doors early in the morning with no sleep, 
I'm thinking that it was gonna be horrible, but it wasn't. There was somebody to greet me at the door and tell me all about the Covenant House and what they were here for and what they could do for me. It was like a safe haven for me. I was uh, able to speak to a lot of workers and uh, the staff. They gave me a lot of opportunities in terms of uh, giving me experience to things I want to do. They helped me get my education uh, back on track. I was able to do parenting classes to be a better mother to my daughter. I was able to go to GED classes. I was able to do job readiness classes. So thankfully to Covenant House, I have the option to, to get work, I have the option to take classes. You have people here that you can talk to. It's just a lot of help. My plan right now is to keep a job, have two or, or just one job that pays well, buying a house somewhere down the line in the future, and then being married. My plans for the future are to become a graphic designer. I want to be able to get a home for my daughter and I. I'm just working on the inside. Like, and once I get my inside together, like, yeah, I'll thrive. Things that truly make me happy is uh, just life, you know, just living life every day. Just knowing that I'm living and knowing that I have an opportunity that's there and all I gotta do is just focus on it and just do it. I see a future for not only me, but for my daughter as well. And I think that all to the Covenant House. Thank you, uh, thank you, Father, and thank you to the Center, and thank you, Villanova, for um, welcoming me uh, in the most meaningful way as a proxy for the Covenant House movement, which uh, matters so much to me and uh, to millions of us across the Americas to be hope in the world for young people and to be love in the world for young people. Seeing the word sleep out there at the end, that is a dirty word this morning because I had the foolish notion that I could uh, do that comfortably last night and there's nothing comfortable about sleeping outside uh, this time of year. And I don't know how you all fare, but when I uh, can't sleep and I really want to sleep, and I'm not talking about the noise, we're right outside the Lincoln Tunnel, so it felt to me like, and it sounded to me like they were filming Predator versus Terminator, <laughs> and it was freezing. My, I could not shake the cold off my nose, um, but just I couldn't sleep. And that was true for everybody who was engaged in, in the sleep out. I get, I get cranky, you know, like progressively angrier. Uh, partly at myself, partly at the world, that there are kids who um, live like this. And I happen to remember that what got me through a couple years ago was to look up at the windows of that building there. And there were young people who were looking out the windows. Um, some teenagers, but also some toddlers who were the children of the kids of Covenant House. And looking out, and it just reminded me that the most important thing we do at Covenant House isn't um, giving kids a meal or giving kids a warm bed or 
delicing young people or getting young people safe. It's none of those things. The most important thing we do is being company for young people and saying to young people, you're not alone. And it did occur to me that these kids were looking out you know, at this parking lot filled with ridiculous, idiotic adults who are sleeping out in 26 degrees, and they could not have felt alone in that space. It took me back to 1992 when I started at Covenant House, locked dinner, had hair, <laughs> and, you know, I was just filled with um, all of the hope and uh, the life and the joy that all of us who are surrounded by a circle of love in our young nurture come away with. The scaffolding of my life was my mother and my father constantly telling me these happy, blissful lies about myself. My mom used to say every single Sunday, she'd say, you have a beautiful voice, sing out. And I don't. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, that was a way to uh, fill me up with a sense of hope and promise. And my mother uh, encouraged all of us. I have five brothers. She encouraged all of us to be singing in church on Sunday. And my children now hate their grandmother for convincing me that I can sing out in church. They're always, you know, squirming when I sing inappropriately loudly in, in mass on Sunday. My dad used to say to me when when I was playing little league, he'd say, you know, get up there, slugger. You know, you're, this is this is gonna be it. You're gonna hit. You're gonna hit a triple. In seven years of little league, I think I hit four singles. Uh, there's no there's no evidence that I was capable of. Uh, and I think those were accidents or, or mercy, where somebody dropped the ball in the field, someone worse than me. But you know what I'm saying to you, where people fill you with this sense of hope. The story of your life becomes what we think of ourselves. And so the narrative mind was, you can, it is possible, you are special. You can, you must, you should. And I, you know, I, I did this crazy thing of going to law school, which for me at the time um, made no sense at all except that I had these folks who filled me with a sense of the possible. And I left Georgetown Law School with all of the arrogance and none of the skill that law school should instill, all of the hope and the bliss and the joy and the rising up that was my young life, and came into Covenant House really unprepared for uh, a house of heartbreak, 350 homeless teenagers in one building. I have to be honest with you, I doubted that the world had 350 homeless teenagers in it, let alone that there was a, one building on one block in one city where those kids were living, and then thousands more who didn't have a place to be. That first, I guess it was that first October, I was doing street outreach in the Amtrak tunnels in New York City just kind of learning the ropes of how you go out and begin a conversation with a young person to get them to come into safety. And there's a pregnant 13-year-old living in the Amtrak tunnels. Now, how many of you have ever, have ever been on New Jersey Transit or, or on Amtrak and gone into Penn Station in New York? Okay, so maybe your experience has been like my experience. In my childhood, these were rides that were so filled with, with fun. My brothers and I were looking forward to going to a Yankees game or, God forbid, a Mets game. We would be going to you know, see the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree be lit up. We'd be going to, to, a, a, to a play or, or something fun with my folks. It just never occurred to me that there were young people my age or younger who were living on the other side of those train cars. And, and this girl, April, um, had been you know, prostituted out in the salt mines down in, in southern Manhattan and when she became visibly pregnant and her pimp could no longer sell her, she was cast off and she hooked up with other kids and she was living in the Amtrak tunnel. Nothing got me ready for that. I didn't even know how to integrate that into my life's experience. That first Thanksgiving, my then girlfriend, now my wife, and I were 
um, hanging out at Covenant House New York in the lounge and there were boys in the back of the room who were singing. How many of you have heard of Boys to Men? Thank God. I gave, this, I gave a version of this talk recently at um, Scranton University and I was like, hey, how many of you have heard of Boys to Men? And the, and the librarian was like, I did, I did. It's like, oh my God, I'm so old. So thank you, even if you faked it, thank you so much. So they were singing Boys to Men songs and, uh, and you know, I already told you, I thought I could sing, so I went to the back of the room and I was hanging with these guys and then I realized they were singing the songs that they wanted sung at their funerals. Two of them had full-blown AIDS and one of them was HIV positive. And that's, it's not true today that young people who are infected with HIV um, die, but it was true back then. Covenant House was burying children all the time. The minute a young person had HIV, we were and they were thinking about how is this all going to end. None of that made sense to me. You know, Thanksgiving was terrible. It was a solar eclipse for me at Covenant House. I, I started to lose sight of the sun and the, and the light and the hope. And to be very honest with you, I hated it. Within four months, I can remember saying to Claire, um, I really don't like this and I want to get out of this. And I began looking for work <laughs> four months in. I was like, I'm doing something else. I'm going to go to a law firm or the Legal Aid Society and I'll say this was a nice, interesting thing that I did. I just couldn't find another gig. I kept looking and I couldn't find another gig. Of course, in hindsight, that was not God's plan for me to find another gig, but I didn't know it then. I just felt stuck in a place of adversity and heartbreak, of destruction, of despair. First kid I met, September 7, 1992, Benny. She is sitting across from me in the office. I am newly minted. I don't know how many of you have been to law school or are thinking that you will go to law school. Um, and there's an extraordinary one here, but I promise you that nothing that they teach you in law school gets you ready to sit across from a young person who tells you that she never knew her dad. She lost her mom when she was 13 years old and her mom turned her over to, or the state turned her over to her mother's sister who disenrolled her from school and she was then responsible for all the cooking and the cleaning, all of the chores that went on in the family's house. She was not ever allowed to leave that house. And by the time she was 15, she was turned over to the Crips and she was serially raped through her adolescence. She was prostituted by a local gang. She broke free when she was 17 and she made her way to JFK, the airport terminal, and she lived there for a week. She was eating out of the Nathan's trash can and eventually a Port Authority cop noticed that this young person is wearing the same clothes, she smells really bad, and she's eating out of a trash can and he approached her. It's probably hard for many of you to believe that a young person could be living in an airport terminal uh, for a week, but before 9-11 that was very common. It happens all the time now in the bus terminals. And she did, in fact, live at that airport terminal. The cop told her about a place called Covenant House, brought her into Covenant House. And here she was sitting across from me, and she had so many legal issues. Her aunt had stolen her ID, so she had over $150,000 in debt. She was hopelessly behind in school. The idea then that Binnie would be able to learn to read proficiently, that she would be able to graduate high school and maybe do something beyond that, impossible. I wasn't even thinking of that. And because the law was different then, there was this issue of her having been involved in a prostitution ring and uh, whether or not she was going to be criminally prosecuted. Wow, the universe was raining hard on this kid. And we were, we were, we were together in that first year, because remember, I was, I was growing up as a lawyer. I mean, she was really my first supervisor and I was her first lifeline, though it turned out she was mine. 
but I didn't know that then. She and I were like the worst of a John Grisham novel. We'd be in court together, and I'd be trembling and sweating. In fact, we appeared before Judge Judy Shineland, Judge Judy, you all know now, but she was Judge Shineland back then, and she was as evil then as she is now. <laughs> and I was trembling, physically trembling, and Benny reached over, and she rubbed my hand, and she whispered in my ear, and she said, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. By the way, those of you who are going to be lawyers, it's supposed to be the reverse. You need to say that to them. They're not supposed to be saying that to you, but she said it to me. And she said it to me many times. Um, you know, things emerged in her life. She um, found her way, and we lost track of each other. And I was hot on the trail of a new job. And every time, no, no, no. So I mean this most sincerely. By the second year, I hated Covenant House. I hated it. It was a place where everywhere I looked, and there were so many places to look, there were children who um, carried with them scars of unspeakable violence and loss and betrayal, and I wanted out. So I bump into Benny at Rachel's restaurant in New York City, like almost three years after I started Covenant House. I've just come from a job interview that I don't get at an organization called Children's Rights. I was like, hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Give each other a big hug. She was so different than the first time I saw her. You know, the first time I saw her, I couldn't even tell you what color her eyes were for a half hour because she averted her gaze to the floor. She was so broken and her cheeks were saturated with tears, but now she's just, you know, joy-filled and smiling and radiant as she is now as an adult. And she, and she said to me that things were good, that she met a boy who loved her in the right way in church. I just love that phrase. I, I have children of my own, and who here who, who wants love or wants love for someone else doesn't want your kids to be loved in the right way? And that was so resonant for her because she'd been raped throughout her adolescence. And so I wondered, I can remember thinking, will this kid ever heal? Will she ever find real love in the world? Will she ever be capable of intimacy? And she was sort of stumbling into it then. You know, I didn't know this then. She went on to marry this guy, and they have three beautiful children. But back then, who knew? And then she says to me that she wants to be a nurse. And she's putting herself through school as a waitress at Rachel's. This is the truth of Covenant House. You know, the least interesting thing about the young people who live at Covenant House is that they're homeless. They are students. They're scholars. They're poets. They're athletes. They are interns. They're folding your sweaters at the Gap. There isn't a Starbucks or a Dwayne Reed in New York City they ain't working in. These are young people who are working one, two, three jobs. They're aspiring and striving and rising up, and she was now among them. She was eager because the horizon had been lifted for her. She no longer thought about what she was going to eat tomorrow morning. She thought about changing her life. Mind you now, in three years, she'd not only learned to read, she'd obviously graduated from high school because she was going for her RN. All this just struck me as sort of especially uh, odd, <laughs> to be honest with you. I really had lost touch with her for a long time, and I said to her, well, what do you want to do as a nurse? And she said to me, I want to work in a NICU PICU unit. And for those of you who are unacquainted with that, that is the part of the hospital where neonatal and perinatal infants, often born prematurely and very sick, are cared for. And I know that the conversation didn't just end then, because that's not how the world works, but I can't remember anything after that, because she planted in my head a question that I've not been able to shake. It's haunted and hunted me for two decades. And that is, how does a kid go from never knowing her father, losing her mother, being betrayed by her aunt and every other family member, serially raped through her adolescence, she shows up in an airport terminal and eats out of a trash can for a week, then 
comes into a homeless shelter where she lives and finds her way, hopelessly behind in school, and within three years, decides to give her life to helping other women's sick children get better. How does that happen? And I don't mean that in a sentimental or hypothetical or rhetorical way or not trying to be saccharine or, you know, whatever you might feel in that question. It went right to here for me. How does that happen? I've been around Covenant House long enough to know there's no magic fairy dust that we were suddenly spreading around and kids were better. There's something I realized I'd been missing. I'd been missing that young people were crossing a bridge, that young people were moving from homelessness to hope. And part of it was my personality. Part of it was that I was young and I was new at Covenant House. And I was a lawyer, so I was dealing with problems. So I was looking at young people aging out of foster care. I was looking at kids who were ensnared in trafficking rings and had been commercially sexually exploited and were feeling stuck and despairing. I was, look at, I was looking at stories of rape and poverty and homelessness. And I'd been missing the fact that there were graduations occurring, that there were first apartments, that there were first jobs, that there was healing, that there was rising up. I was really missing it. And I confess to you, I don't think it was just youth. I do think it partly was my personality, but I was missing it. And what I realized is I was in part on the way back from the shelter, but I think it sunk in over the course of a couple days. I was a crossing guard on this bridge. I was actually someone who was watching and helping occasionally young people cross. And when I realized that I was sitting on the 50-yard line for some of the most miraculous transformations of the human spirit, and I got to see that and occasionally coach on that field, I was hooked. No more, no more job interviews. I was there. Because the answer to this question about how does that happen isn't mystical or magical. It's about the people of God, the people of love coming together, deciding very intentionally to be love in the world for every young people, including young people whose, whose own families, whose birth families can't or won't be that. On my best day with Benny, I, I was company, but the truth is if Covenant House has a patron saint, then it's Veronica. You know, I, when I was a young lawyer at Covenant House, I used to think of myself as one of these people screaming. You know, if you imagine challenging the status quo, maybe, maybe in the story of Christ's crucifixion, one of these people who's yelling at the soldiers, how could you do that? Sometimes when I was real arrogant, and trust me, law school can make you real arrogant, <laughs> I thought I was, you know, carrying the cross too. You know, even though I was going home to my comfortable, beautiful suburban home, I thought, you know, here I am, Simon, carrying the cross. But no, that's not really what we were called to do. What we are called to do is almost invisibly, when nobody else is paying attention, drop to our knees, just as Veronica drops to her knees. And Christ, in this moment of utter painful human suffering, drops to his knees. And what does she say? You're not alone. You're not alone. We often, and I'm the worst at this, we often let our inability to do the big thing, imagine the big thing, get in our way of doing the little thing, and the little thing is almost always the big thing to someone else. And I realized that I was just invited to show up, be present, be loving, get out of the way, let God be more in me than I would be. And when I figured out the Covenant House was a movement of people, of thousands and thousands of people across the Americas who want to be love and hope in the world, now I was all in. But the truth is, this is not just painful for our kids at Covenant House, it's painful for us. What our kids at Covenant House have to do is they have to rewire. 
they have to hear a different story because if all they've heard over and over and over again, so just imagine for yourselves, if you wake up on Monday morning and all you hear from the faculty, from your roommate, from your dorm mates, from your family, if all you heard for a week, just do it for a week, and actually don't do it, just imagine it, if all you heard was, you're terrible, you don't fit in, you're broken, you're stupid, you don't belong, get out, get out, get out, get out, that becomes the story of your life. It becomes your narrative. And young people at Covenant House walk in the front door, and it's been for a lot longer than a week that they've experienced a story of marginalization and disenfranchisement. And the most important work we do at Covenant House is the rewiring work. And the way that rewiring work happens is just how it happened in the Old Testament with Ruth and Naomi, right? So there's a famine. They're in the desert. My wife loves this story because she says in, in this story, all the men left and left the women in the desert. And my wife says when there's a real problem, all the men split and the women have to figure that out. I don't find that that funny, to be honest with you, but <laughs> I repeat that in her honor. So uh, it's for you, honey. So in any event, um, you know, Ruth and Naomi kinswomen are in the desert and there's a famine and the men have left and mother-in-law says to daughter-in-law, I won't make it here. I'm not going to make it. You will die with me. Go, save yourself. And daughter-in-law looks at mother-in-law. And now we often use this, right? It's sort of scripture that gets used in, in modern um, wedding ceremonies. But its origins are two women stuck in the midst of a natural disaster who say to each other, no, wherever you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. And so shall I be buried beside you, right? What is that about? That is about you are not alone. I will show up. I will be present. It's a simple thing. It's not an extraordinary thing. Just not leaving. Just staying in the work. But it requires trust. It requires trust in each other. We're never more certain in our lives of how much we love being healthy than when we're very sick. We never cherish life more than we do when we lose someone that we deeply love. And what happens is that we fall hard. Those of you who've experienced grief, real grief, you know that it can feel like a spiral that one cannot get out of. The good news is that it just reminds you of the summit it reminds you of how beautiful it was to be in the company of the one you loved, of how wonderful it was to be healthy. We often have to experience a downpour to wake up and cherish the sun. Some of us will die in that place because the distance between where we are and where we were or where we want to be is so far. So far to get back to health, so far to get back to feeling like you can be loved again. I miss my mother, I miss my father. I miss my, my partner, my brother, my sister. I miss them. Some of us will get paralyzed and die there. But the memory of what was once beautiful, of the sun, will carry some of us, most of us, forward. Our spirits will lean forward. And then what we'll remember is that the summit is so high up that there's a climbing, there's a rising up. It's going to be work for me to feel well again. It's going to be work for me to trust again. How can I get back to this place? Some of us will die there. We'll be paralyzed by the invitation to move, by the rising up, by the loneliness, by the despair, by the vertigo. But most of us will do this extraordinary thing. And I don't just mean the Covenant House kids. I mean us. We'll close our eyes. 
will realize that we cannot make this climb to joy, to bliss, to love. We can't do it again on our own. We'll resist fear and anxiety. We'll open up our hands. And we will find them surprisingly, eye-poppingly clenched by others. Because we are not alone. The great joy of the Covenant House movement is to know that God's providence and love is revealed to us through each other. We are sacrament to each other. We are hope to each other. We are life and love to each other. And these kids, they don't need your pity. They don't need your tears. They need you. They need your help. They need your company. If you walk out of here today with one message, it's this. Show up. Show up. Thanks. Do you, want, do you want to have a few questions? Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I offered to sing, but I'm told it would be better to do a Q&A. Yeah. Do you have a, a particular request? For no, that was a joke. I'm not singing. So we have time for, for questions. I'd love to uh, bring the mic. Hi. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, you know, I study copywriting, and, uh, and I read everything that comes in my house usually, and letters are always on top for something amazing. And Thank you. I really appreciate the importance of telling that good story. And uh, my question about storytelling that I want to mention, I had the privilege of um, having a covenant house where I had my home for about a month, and it was extraordinary. So I don't know, could you talk more about the process you go through with your writing your letters? Sure, sure. I mean, it's uh, not an easy one. You should just know by backdrop that Covenant House um, has the largest, um, we call it direct mail. So it's, I, I write 26 letters a year to a couple million people across a couple countries, and that raises 80% of the money that uh, funds Covenant House. So would I love to get a huge government grant? Yes, but um, I have something better. I have two million people sending five and $10 a month deciding not to get that Starbucks, deciding that their Thanksgiving table will be a little bigger because they believe in kids in Vancouver or Hollywood or in Anchorage or Managua or Guatemala or New York City or in Philadelphia. Um, and so the stories that I write are um, about the young people who I work with and who I meet, like Benny. You know, one of my favorite stories, which is coming to uh, a mailbox near you soon, uh, is, is, um, is about Jeremiah, who I met um, three Christmases ago um, at Covenant House. And um, we're, we have mass at Covenant House in New York City. And we, the way Covenant House in New York City is set up is that there are this group of windows that overlook um, uh, 10th Avenue. And so behind the altar, I could see that there was this kid hovering there and peering in. And I have to be honest with you, at first I thought, well, this is going to be a distraction for people. I want to go outside and say, what's going on? And um, Jeremiah was, um, you know, very reticent at first. I said, hey, and he, I could tell that he was a teenager. I couldn't tell exactly what age he was. And I said, hey, what's going on? Now, this is Christmas Eve, right, at 41st and 10th. And this kid says to me, um, 
you know, I'm fine, I'm fine, and I could tell that he wasn't fine. I said, what's going on with you? And he was pretty reticent about the story, but eventually said that he didn't have a place to be. His folks had, had um, one of his parents had died and another parent had a drug addiction. And he said, but you know, I only have $26 on me and I, and I can't pay for this. And I said, no, it's free. He's like, no, it's not free. I was like, no, I run it, it's free, it really is. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, you know, slowly but surely he came in and I don't, you know, I'm a sentimental guy, so around Christmas, I love the Christmas music and I love, but I could tell it was off-putting to him, right? Because he, the last thing he wanted to do was bounce into a place where um, a group of folks was in a circle singing Silent Night. And so we instead went into the kitchen. There were brownies and hot chocolate that did the trick. And he started to relax a little bit. One of my Ryan children um, was, was there and they were about the same age. So I said, Johnny, come over here. And we started talking about football. I'm a Jets fan, so naturally elicited a lot of sympathy almost immediately in the conversation. <laughs> um, and uh, we got to talking, and he, re and he really relaxed, and he started to tell his story. Um, and then the worst, <laughs> it's easier to write this one. So the worst and most beautiful thing. The worst thing is I get a phone call Someone has just broken into the Covenant House in Newark, taking all the Christmas presents, right? So I want to be a super forgiving, loving person, and I'm growing into that guy one day. But I was thinking to myself, there is a special place in hell for someone who breaks into a homeless shelter on Christmas Eve and takes homeless teenagers' presents. I was out of my mind. And while I'm usually trying to de-escalate at the shelter, there were people wrapping around me. Um, you know, who are saying, okay, calm down, calm down. I was like, calm down, it's nine o'clock at night. Like, what are we doing? Are we going to 7-Eleven and we're like buying, you know, like, you know, Twizzlers or something? Like, what, this is gonna be the worst <laughs> Christmas ever. Um, so this kid, Jeremiah, hears me. And he gives me his 26 bucks. And that story, you can tell that story still gets to me. So we tell that story at Christmas time because it reminds all of us these kids are not kids who want to be pitied. And these aren't kids who want everything delivered to them. They want to be invited into a place of contribution. They want to know that they got something to give back. I just love the fact that this, that this boy, who I have lost track of, but that this boy who, like two hours before, was outside the shelter and was clinging to that cash and that wallet and it's all he had, you know, was inside, conversation with my son and some staff, hot chocolate and a brownie, and says, take my last $26 and go get something for the kids at the shelter. Because I think he thought I was panicked because we didn't have any money, but I was panicked because it was nine o'clock on Christmas Eve. Um, you know, that, there are stories like that all across Covenant House. Last time I was in Anchorage, I was driving out of town, a woman was clinging to the side of the wall and she, was, and she said to um, Deirdre, my colleague who runs Covenant House Alaska, she goes, I'm, I'm moving back to the United States and I just want to say goodbye to the building that saved my life. Like that's, you know, when you're in a movement that touches 56,000 extraordinary young people a year, you get to, as I said, be on the 50 yard line of some of the most miraculous transformations of the human spirit. And we just tell those stories. Um, but I write them because the crying Ryan business is very annoying. Uh, I'm, so I, <laughs> so I prefer to write the story. They keep saying, you know, you should go digital. I was like, I'm not going digital. 
hi. <laughs> no, not my strength. Uh, so storytelling is important for sure, and our kids have lots of them. You know, you're, all, you're paralyzed that it's going to be like a complete meltdown if you ask the next question. So, so <laughs> I get this. Kevin, yeah. you talked about, um, you know, you've lost track of some of them. How, how much effort goes into actually following them? A, a lot of, yeah, a lot of effort father goes into um, keeping up with them and providing aftercare and support. There are young people who don't ever want to remember that they were homeless ones, and so they naturally break away. There are kids who return to the streets and return to drugs or return to a trafficking ring. In the book that Tina and I wrote, um, Pauly, who goes on to become the, the kickboxing champion of Alaska, was in and out of Covenant House, Alaska, 11 times before he landed and changed his life. But we have teams who are deployed to be in the community all the time, go out to their apartments. That's what I would, actually, when I was doing legal aid work, I spent more time with kids after they left Covenant House. Like, how, how are things going in your apartment? Do you have enough money? You know, are the utilities covered? Um, but there are about 50,000 kids moving in and out of Covenant House every year, so it's a massive undertaking to both, you know, be out on the streets and bring them in, love them and help them while they're here, and follow and support them on the back end. And we probably do a much better job in the first and second part than we do in the third part. Yeah. Hi, my name's Mark Thor. I'm a uh, faculty member here, and uh, I had the privilege of uh, interning at, at Covenant House in New York in 1985. Mark, we went to school together. Were you at Catholic University? No. Oh, I apologize. <laughs> uh, I was like, man, you look good. <laughs> uh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I have two questions. Um, one is when I was there in 85, there was a uh, group of uh, volunteers who were living in an intentional community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I want to know if that continues around the uh, so they, they, they give a year of service to yeah. work together. And then the second thing had to do with something you were just talking about. There was, in 85, they were just beginning, so when Father Ritter was still there, and yeah. they were just beginning to get into the idea of creating housing. Mm -hmm. more, more or less permanent right. housing that Covenant House would be responsible for. Right. I'm wondering how Right, so, um, so, so this program that Mark, um, nice to meet you, <laughs> that Mark and I are talking about, it, it's called the Covenant House Faith Community. It's like the Peace Corps or the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. It's a, it's a year of service. And the way I first came to know Covenant House was my then girlfriend graduated from a school and she went and joined the, the faith community and she was in the year-long service program at Covenant House in New Orleans and you know to our great joy our oldest son Dan graduated uh, two years ago from school and said you know I want to give a year of my life and he served uh, in our program in Covenant House in Atlantic City so we do still have a program we attract um, you know the best and brightest young people from across the country who want to do two things they want to give a year of service to homeless and runaway young people live in our volunteer house but also want to grow spiritually. You know, this is a year of faith and reflection. Um, so folks are committing to pray together, to think together about social justice questions, and then to live the work together. And it's a really important program. And for those of you who might be thinking about a year of service or two years of service afterward, um, please think about the Covenant House Faith Community because uh, it will change your life. There's a gift waiting for you in this work, um, and you'll discover it, as my wife did and as my son just did. 
And then in terms of permanent housing, we have found that it's, it's so important that you give kids a next place to go. So Covenant House, in addition to the shelters, has what we call the Rites of Passage program, which is a transitional living program. And probably half of the kids we serve across the United States and Canada live in that program. Um, and then there are apartments in the community. We just opened up our 90th apartment in New Orleans, um, where there's, you know, as you know, post-Katrina, there's so much housing that um, was destroyed, and we're trying to rebuild that community. Um, we also have a new type of program that we're offering in Toronto, about to open this program up in New York City. It's a safe house for trafficked girls. So there are clearly um, young people who have been trafficked who have lived at Covenant House, but many of these young people are witnesses in criminal prosecutions and they need their identities protected. So we're taking them out of the bigger covenant houses and we're working with the Sisters of the Good Shepherd, the Lifeway Network to set up houses for five and six girls and in, in Honduras it's for boys too. Um, and in Latin America we're co-prosecuting those cases. But the continuum of housing obviously has to be very robust. And the biggest challenge, you didn't ask this, but the biggest challenge in the United States is the lack of affordable housing for young people. You have to make, we project about $21 an hour in New York City in order to afford affordable housing. Um, which is not the kind of gig that kids get very easily. <clears throat> It's, you know, it's, it, there, is, there is so much heartbreak at Covenant House. And, um, you know, in, in the book that Tina and I wrote, um, Almost Home, we talked about a young, uh, a young boy who committed suicide in Atlantic City a couple of years ago. Um, a young woman who was gay on Valentine's Day jumped off the George Washington Bridge after she'd been with us for a week. Um, you know, you, nobody absolves themselves at Covenant House feeling like, um, but well, we did our best, nobody ever thinks that. We think, we had a week here, how did we not turn this around? And kids who go back to addiction, kids who go back to, to um, you know, commercial sexual exploitation, young people who make you know, decisions that hurt them, um, these, this is the toughest part of the work. What I say when I travel to Covenant House from time to time is we tell ourselves that the reason people leave this movement is because the pay is not great, because you know, the radiator doesn't work, because the, photo, the photocopier is broke. My, my voicemail system at Covenant House for six years was a secretary a football field away yelling, Kevin, you have a call! Like those sorts of things can wear on you. That's not why people are leaving our movement. People are leaving the movement because we tell ourselves we have to wear Kevlar when we walk into Covenant House and we have to be strong and invincible, and then we start being the martyr. Like, oh, no, 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 I'll do it. Oh, no, no, I got it, I got it. And you know what I say to folks all the time? Get off the cross, we need the wood. This is about opening yourself, this is about opening yourself to the experience of human suffering. So if you're looking in the mirror every day, what you have to, what we have to be honest about is that if we don't strip ourselves of the anxiety and the worry and the prejudice and the bias, then that's what we give our young people. And if we're not filled with love, real love, not faked it love, but real love, and we won't give that, because you can't give what you don't have. So the work at Covenant House is every day taking care of our spirits so that we are people of love and so that, we are be so that we're strong for each other in this work. But that doesn't mean invincible. 
And the big challenge for us at Covenant House always, 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 is to keep lifting our people up because, you know, we're as good as our people are. One more. No, I think that there are um, many, many programs that when they deeply believe in young people and help young people believe in themselves are successful. Uh, Covenant House is not. We're part of a movement, and the movement isn't Covenant House. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Covenant House, but I'm not, about, I'm not trying to keep Covenant House's doors open. I'm trying to end youth homelessness, and we are not doing that alone. We're doing that with thousands of agencies across the world, so there are many places that do extraordinary work that we learn from, that lift us up, that make our movement stronger and better. And I say, I say to folks all the time at Covenant House, the minute that we think that this is about Covenant House, we have lost the bullseye. That is not what this is about. And the truth is, if there's one thing that I think we've got going in our corner, is that when we get reflective, as I hope we are all the time, and humble, which we have to be, we recognize that it's God's providence that makes this movement possible. It's the love of Christ. It's, we are trying to be reflections of God's love in the world. And I think programs that try to do it on their own, that offer solutions that are just based in what we can do and what we can fix, they just rob themselves of the opportunity to explore and divine grace. Um, it also makes it a lot easier because when I think to myself, I don't know where we're getting $165 million from. I don't know. I'm just like, where are we getting it from? <laughs> and then it comes. <laughs> it's been working. It's God's covenant house. I just worked there. One more question. Oh, pass the mic. Hi. Thank you for um, your story. I really appreciate it. And how would you describe the process of getting to know and helping the person coming into Covenant House? Sure. Well, it begins on the street with uh, Covenant House street outreach workers every day going out and meeting young people. And you know, the most, the most sacred special thing I've ever seen, I saw a couple months ago, where we were in the Eastern Market of, of Managua and we were um, next to the dump, and the further into the dump we paced, the higher the piles of rubbish were, but young people, kids, started to emerge from uh, these spaces. And I saw this kid who I'd seen two years ago in Street Outreach when she was 17, and I saw her now, so she's, you know, 19-ish. She looked like she was 45 years old. This kid is, she's huffing glue out of a Gerber's baby food jar, She's, a, she's addicted, she is being bought and sold on the streets of Managua. She's never come in to Covenant House, Casa Alianza. She's never come in. And I thought, I thought, what's going on here? What are we doing? We got 300 young people inside the shelter. Why are we out on the streets um, reaching out to young people who are never coming inside? And I saw the street outreach team don latex gloves and put Zanate propelled this gooey yellow substance 
in their fingers and slowly begin to massage her scalp. They were delicing her scalp. And humanity flickered in her eyes. It wasn't forever, it was for a couple of minutes until her metabolism said, I need the next hit, and then she was, she was back, right, into the addiction. But I thought to myself, this is maybe the only safe touch that this kid is going to experience today, or maybe until the team returns. And I, and I honestly think that this is what Christ was calling us to uh, when he was washing the apostles' feet. Like, I, look, I love the church, but we have lost our way on Holy Thursday. Like, people are getting mani-pedis when they show up at church. Their feet are perfumed. Everyone's checking out the shoes that everyone else is wearing. That is not what was going on. Jesus took the dirty, grimy, filthy feet of his followers, bent down, and washed their feet. And I think that's the closest thing I've ever seen to that in my lifetime, was these street outreach workers going into this place of inhumanity and insisting on dignity and insisting on humanity. And that happens in different ways in 27 cities across six countries with people going to the Hollywood Strip, with kids being bought and sold, with people going into Town Square in Toronto and the downtown east in Vancouver, here in Philadelphia in the micro brothels, the traffic kids, and inviting kids into relationship. But how do you do that? You bring a sandwich, you bring a blanket, you start a conversation, and you don't say, do you need a place to be? Because young people have learned to be protective and wary. So we say, hey, if you know of anybody who needs a safe place to be, here's our card. And if you go out every single day and you're trustworthy and you bring relevant, useful information, food, water, coats, blankets, gloves, there's a sandwich ministry here in Philadelphia. Every single day, college students, empty nesters show up at the shelter and they make sandwiches that the street outreach team takes onto the streets of Philadelphia and feed homeless teenagers. And eventually, kids say to themselves, all right, I'm gonna give this a try. And they come in. And then when they come in to Covenant House Philadelphia or they come in to one of our Covenant Houses, then we begin to work with them. What's your story? What's going on? Where are you with your family? Where are you with school? And every young person has a story, and it takes time. Some young people can quickly tell you their story. Some people, it takes weeks. Some kids have mental health issues, so they need to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Some young people have immigration issues. Some young people are ready to tell you their story right now. They're like, you know, I'm three college credits away from graduating. My parents are gone. I, I need help figuring out how to get back into school. So it just depends. But we architect, co-architect with them the road forward. And all the time saying, you can do this. You're special, keeping company with them, loving them, paying attention to them, being home for them. But I don't want kids, there are plenty of staff at Covenant House who disagree. I don't want kids to think of Covenant House as home. I want them to think of it as love. I want our kids to have more than Covenant House. I want them to have their own families. I want them to have degrees. I want them to know love in the world that, that doesn't leave. I want them to feel embraced by the great promise of their lives. And I think we, when we do this right, turn kids on to that at Covenant House. And then they're off, you know, then they soar. On our good days, we're helium for kids' dreams. In our bad days, you know, we're asking ourselves, how do we let that happen? You know, how do we lose him? How do we lose her? Why is she, why is she back on drugs? What did we do wrong? So thank you all so much.